Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by longtime Whole Whale friend, Dan Treglia, PhD, is going to be talking to us about a new and important report, but I'm going to throw it over to Dan because he'll be way better at introducing himself than I could. Dan, why don't you tell us a little about who you are and why you're here? Sure. I'm glad you put the PhD at the end of my name. Otherwise, people might not think I'm smart. So good job throwing that in there. Right. Uh, Important. Uh, So hi, everybody. Nick, it's fantastic to see you again. Um, so I am an associate professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and I've done social policy research on a variety of fronts for about 10 or 15 years at this point, first working in city government and now you know, working at the university and continue to work with governments and nonprofits, largely on issues of housing instability, homelessness, and poverty, and now have had this exciting and kind of difficult opportunity to talk about something that is a a pressing concern for our country, which is not just COVID deaths, but the children that that those deaths leave behind. Yeah, it's a really impactful and important report, and we'll take time to go through it because it has a lot of ramifications for a lot of different aspects of our society and how we approach recovery, I think. But why don't you tell us a little bit about how this research came to be and the COVID collaborative that helped uh, put this together? The COVID collaborative is a group of current and former public officials and public health leaders that have been moving the needle on a number of fronts related to policy and practice, um, all to do with COVID uh, for quite a, for quite a while at this point, um, and in early 2021, uh, a report came out along with an op-ed in the Washington Post talking about COVID bereaved children. Right, these children that had lost a parent to to COVID nineteen, and at that point, it was still kind of early in 2021, and unfortunately, early in the, in the pandemic, we've come to learn those researchers estimated that there are about 40,000 children that had lost a parent. Um, and that was a good step and helped to kind of really align uh, our thinking and the thinking of a lot of people that this is something that really needs to be addressed. And so we wanted to, to build on that. And there's been some other work that's come out as well. But what we wanted to do here was get a, a sense of how many children were in this situation how many children had lost a parent or some other caregiver to COVID-19, who those children were, what their other needs might be, uh, where they might be living, and then perhaps most importantly, what to do. Um, So in fact, our estimates are an important part of our report, uh, but not the longest part of our report because we spend the vast majority of our time here thinking about what difficulties are these children facing? Then how can we as a country come together in the public sector, the nonprofit sector, and the private sector all work together to help these children that are incredibly vulnerable. I think that's really important. And you set the scene really, really nicely. And I want to spend a significant amount of time 
talking about those next steps, how we address this, what actions we need to take. But to help us set the scene a little bit more, I think it might help to start with some numbers just to put the size of this in perspective. So Dan, what are the top line numbers that listeners should take away from this report, knowing that numbers represent people, there are human individual stories behind this, but how can we best understand the the scope of this problem of understanding children who are grieving the loss of a parent or caregiver due to COVID? Sure. So here's what we found. We estimated that 167,000 children lost a parent or some other caregiver to COVID-19, right? 167,000 children. That's through mid-November. There have been another 30,000 or so deaths since then, and we would expect many more children have lost a caregiver to COVID-19 in the interim. Of them, 13,000 lost their only in-home caregiver, and nearly 73,000 lost a parent. Um, Here's one thing that I cannot overstate. We think that this number is on the low end of a reasonable estimate. Uh, For one, there's ample evidence of undercounting of COVID-19 infection and deaths, especially in the pandemic's earliest days when infections and deaths were most heavily concentrated in urban and low-income areas with the highest concentration of non-white populations. Um, And second, there are additional deaths that are attributable to COVID-19 indirectly, either through things like increased suicides or reduced access to healthcare, which we're seeing again, And also what we're looking at are people that live with the child. So there could also be non-custodial parents and other people that provide care for the child that don't live with the child um, who have perished during this this crisis um, and they're not included in these numbers. To give you a little bit more more detail about who these children are, um, we saw racial and ethnic disparities that exceed even the already horrifying disparities that we see in COVID deaths themselves. Uh, American Indian and Alaskan Native and Hawaiian and Pacific Islander children lost caregivers at at rates three to four times that of white children. And Black and Hispanic children lost caregivers at rates about two and a half times that of their white counterparts. So certainly we all know that the pandemic has not affected everyone equally, right? It has targeted the most vulnerable groups. And we're seeing that here in caregiver loss as well. So those numbers, the the disparity in the unequal effect of the pandemic on racial minorities in America, to me, that's shocking. And uh, maybe that's simply reflective of disparities that already existed. But what do you think this stark difference in how the pandemic is affecting racial minority groups in America, what does that say about the state of our country, the state of our healthcare system, and how does public policy need to respond to this? So I think it's no secret that the pandemic has exacerbated and kind of preyed on longstanding social and economic inequalities. Uh, It's often been low-wage workers that are working in confined spaces and interacting with the public, even during the worst surges of the pandemic. And therefore, those groups um, are at the highest risk of COVID infection. Um, And because of um, other social determinants of health, 
are also the ones that are most vulnerable to death as a result of, of COVID-19. Um, and low-income household, low-income populations and Black and Hispanic populations um, are also much more likely to live in what I think is kind of as non-traditional households, right? Not just two adults and a child, they're more likely to have a single parent. They're also more likely to live in uh, multi-generational households or other doubled up conditions, in which case transmission is more probable. Um, and if you have a, an older person, a, a grandparent who's there caring for the parent, caring for the child, well, that person is the result of their age and perhaps underlying health conditions, um, maybe more likely to die as a result of um, of COVID-19. Um, and because so many of these children were facing economic or social adversity and challenges even before COVID and before they lost a caregiver, um, they also have the fewest resources with which to cope and adapt. Um, and there is a responsibility among governments, nonprofits, and the private sector uh, to respond and to care for them. Yeah, Dan, that's a great transition because we talked about the the scale of the problem, the effect of uh, losing a caregiver or parent on these children. But I think where the report really stands out is in the bold and well-delineated recommendations and next steps in the, the public and private spheres as well. So um, what would you say are the top line recommendations, whether that be to governments, policymakers, what would you like to see most happen? What's the most pressing thing that needs to happen? So I'm going to break it down to kind of three different buckets for you. Okay, what, what a reasonable response and a concerted and comprehensive response looks like. Um, and I don't want to say that there's one that we need to do, because we need to identify these children, care for their social, emotional, and clinical needs, and also care for their economic needs. Um, the needs of these children were, mal were oftentimes multifaceted even before the pandemic, and now they're bringing on this, this layer of grief and instability, having lost a parent or another caregiver, and we need to take all of that into account. So those are the three buckets. We need to identify these children. Uh, we need to care for their social, emotional, and clinical needs, um, and we need to care for their economic needs. Here's the good news. We don't need to create a brand new infrastructure to do all of that work. Many of the pieces are already in place, um, but we need to leverage them and we need to reinforce and we need to strengthen them. Uh, so here's an example. We need to do a better job identifying these children in places where they're interacting with adults on a regular basis anyway, so that schools and this pediatric healthcare settings and also community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, um, where children are present on a regular basis as well. Now, schools already have to screen for other social determinants of health. They have to screen for housing status um, as required by the Department of Education, and they have to screen for income and food insecurity for the free and reduced lunch uh, program run by the U.S. Department of, of Agriculture. Um, so this is, a not, this is an opportunity to also ask children about whether or not they've lost a parent or a caregiver to COVID-19. At the same time, healthcare settings, primary clinics, things like that, are increasingly asking about housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, mental health conditions, when you are making an appointment or going in for uh, an appointment. Well, again, 
those settings, those doctors, those nurses can also ask questions about whether or not a child has lost a parent or a caregiver to COVID-19. Um, we can also use administrative data to do, to do this. We can match the death records with birth records or with social service records to identify children that are either born to that, indivi to, to that individual, to someone that might've died from COVID-19 um, or someone where that, where that lives with that person. Um, these are all tools at our disposal that already exist. We just need to do a better job of leveraging them and managing them, right? So that's one. The same is true when we think about um, buttressing community-based supports, right? Peer support groups, mentorship programs already exist, right? We need to do a couple of things. One, expanding them. Second, bringing those resources and that knowledge of grief, that competence, dealing with grief and bereavement to organizations that are not familiar or comfortable with them right now, right? Making sure that teachers, clergy, um, right, youth athletic leaders are all capable of identifying this grief and then providing some kind of first line care and then also knowing where to refer a child or a family to if they need, if they need those kinds of services. A lot of this has to do not with, again, the existence of these resources, but availability and access to them. So mm. the vast majority of children, 90 to 95%, will be fine with the supports that they already have in their lives and, and supports that they can get from their communities. But five to 10%, so a small but significant amount, will need some sort of clinical care. They're going to likely going to experience some kind of traumatic or prolonged grief, um, and they might need some sort of therapy or other clinical care. We need to do a better job of making that therapy available to those children. And there's a couple issues here. First is simply a lack of providers to provide that care, right? There is a mental health shortage in the United States, and that is especially notable in communities that have been hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, we need to do a better job of placing those resources into schools where children are on a regular basis. And schools are already a hub for resources in the first place. Um, so here's one disturbing statistic that we came across. A group of school psychologists suggest that the proper ratio of students to school psychologists should be 500 to one. But in fact, the ratio is more than double that. 1,200 to one. So those resources simply are not there. And the same is true with guidance counselors as well. And teachers, despite being what I consider a kind of social first responder, they're not properly equipped to manage grief regularly. And again, it's not about creating the infrastructure. It's about preparing them to address the needs that are in front of them. And again, there are programs that do that. So there's a program run by the New York Life Foundation called uh, the Grief Sensitive Schools Initiative, which goes into schools and teaches school administrators and teachers how to identify and deal with students that are managing a loss. We need to find ways to expand that and programs like it. Right. Wow. That's, I think, such a great framework for looking at it. So to, to summarize in a way... This infrastructure is there. Those social first responders, as you say, they're in place, but 
we don't yet have the capacity to ramp up to the scale of the problem in terms of in a clinical setting, mental health professionals, in a school setting, uh, school psychologists. But it seems like there also needs to be a component where we're going into those groups, those athletic school directors, those uh, community organization, point of first contact type people, and providing them with resources or the training to be able to uh, address this head on. Is right. that a fair <clears throat> summary? Yeah. I, I think I think that's largely fair. And again, other other things that we can do, right? There's an affordability issue here as well. Um, right. So even when there is access, mental health services are oftentimes not cheap, even if you have insurance. And so we need to do more to eliminate the patient cost sharing component of accessing mental health care. Right. I think Luckily, right, a lot of the stigma associated with seeking mental health care is, is being removed, but there are still these barriers, right, that are physical and that are financial as well. Now, telehealth is a way to get at some of that, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is making inroads to address some of those barriers, but certainly there, there's more that can be done, um, and certainly insurance companies and others can do more to make mental health care more available generally and for this population specifically. There's the other piece that we didn't talk about, which is about providing for the economic well-being of these families, right? As we spoke about earlier, many of these families were facing social and economic adversities even before the pandemic hit, and then certainly before they lost a, a caregiver, because they might've been the first ones to suffer in the economic turmoil of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they certainly lost a caregiver, and therefore that family might have to create alternate caregiver arrangements, which could include paying for childcare that you didn't have to do before. Um, but they also might've lost a breadwinner, right? Because these are, these are often parents. It's made, again, 73,000 children lost a parent to COVID-19, right? And there are many other people kind of of working age beyond those 73,000 that left a, a, a child behind. So we need to do more to care for them. And we propose a, a set of relatively specific um, interventions. The first and maybe the most notable is the creation of what we call the COVID-19 Bereaved Children's Fund, which is a fund that would provide $10,000 to each child that lost a parent or other in-home caregiver to COVID-19. Um, plus would also cover the costs of mental health care. So that's one. But we also need to, to do more, and that includes uh, categorical eligibility for already mainstream social supports like SNAP, Medicaid, uh, and TANF, making the revised child tax credit permanent, um, and increasing outreach for, um, for all of those things, because you might have households that have now lost income and they're, and they're now eligible for those programs or maybe they were eligible before, but they weren't accessing it. Now they need to know you can get this program, right? FEMA has a program to cover funeral expenses. Um, and again, we need to do more to uh, ensure that families are aware of that benefit. There are many families that have lost a caregiver to COVID-19. They're not accessing social security survivors benefits. We need to do more to make sure that people are accessing the resources to which they are eligible. Those are, I think, really great concrete recommendations. And we talked a lot about policies that are 
getting a lot of attention now in the news and not to dive into specific policy or packages or anything like that. But for me, the this research, um, this study uh, shows the impact of social science research on public policy. And we're talking about programs that, uh, you know, 10 years down the line, you know, renewing the child tax credit could have profound economic and uh, economic and and social benefits going in well into the future. Um, so I'm wondering if taking a step back as a researcher, um, how do you see the role of social science research like this in informing public policy? Um, I think this is this got a lot of this report got a lot of press in mainstream outlets, and that must be tremendous for kind of elevating the issue uh, to the highest level and bringing it to consciousness. But I wonder how you see research like this influencing public narratives and discussions as we, quite frankly, move through a transformative moment in our history. I think that our job is to explore and synthesize. Right? Our job is to oftentimes think of the questions, even before being asked the questions by a policymaker, do the analysis, do all that work, and then provide the best possible information to those policymakers and also those practitioners so they can then go and what we hope that they do is improve the lives of the people that need their assistance. Um, right? I'm not a policymaker, right? That's not my job. I'm not a legislator. But what I can do is look at the landscape of what's, what is the problem? What are the resources that are available to address that now? What is applicable to the current situation? Where are the gaps? And then provide a sense of, a sense of coherence to the recommendations that can become actionable by someone, where they can pick it up and say, you know, here's what we're gonna do. And that's what we wanted to do with this report. We didn't say we should just provide for the economic well-being of, of families, because that can take many forms. What we wanted to do was say, not only can you, not only is there a responsibility to care for the social and economic well-being of these families, but here are some ways that you can do that. And this is certainly not the end-all be-all of ways of addressing the concerns and challenges facing the, these children and their families. But this we think is a very good starting point. And we hope that legislators at the federal and state and local levels will pick this up and, and run with it. I hope so too, because it's so important. And I think my last question is to a point you just raised about the cohesiveness of this report. Uh, it struck me that there you're talking about solutions or actions that go talk about schools, um, you know, clinical settings, access to to health and and mental health resources. You talk about community groups. Dan, a lot of our listeners are probably nonprofit professionals, um, many of whom probably work with nonprofit community-based organizations. What would be your takeaway to folks working to provide social services to people in communities as part of this kind of cohesive plan? What, what would you say that their takeaways should be? I think there are a couple of takeaways. First is, we know that you're working harder than you've ever had to work. And this can't all fall to you. We need to do a better job. We being kind of the social science world that is producing this research 
and the policymakers that are providing the resources and, and kind of assistance to you, the nonprofits, we need to do a better job of, of supporting you. And so the question is, what can you do? Well, certainly to address this problem, you can think about how you can integrate grief care into the work that you do now, how you can address those specific needs. There are free and very cheap ways of improving your knowledge of, of grief and bereavement to identify a child and to provide some base level of care and even to facilitate things like peer support groups. Um, so that's one. But the other way, the other thing that you can do is read this and then speak with your, your policymakers about the need that you're seeing on the ground and how that their work can help not only those children, but can help you serve those children better. I think those are great recommendations and takeaways from this incredible research uh, with incredibly comprehensive and cohesive action items. And I think you'd probably agree with me that this is just a start. The work is just beginning. Um, and that the effects of this, I hope this report influences decisions as we move away from the pandemic. Are there any last words you want to say before well, I let you go? I think it's important to note that this is in fact the beginning, right? This, this work was done with the COVID collaborative that is moving very hard and very quickly to try to move this into action, right? This is a group of, of leaders that is ready to lead on this. And so though we don't think of the research as the end of the game, this only sets the stage for what has to happen next. We know there's a lot of work to be done and we hope that your listeners will join us in doing everything we can to support these more than 150,000 children. That's very well said, Dan. Thank you. Dan Treglia, PhD. Thank you for being on the Whole Whale podcast. To learn more about Dan and the COVID Collaborative's work, uh, we recommend that you visit covidcollaborative.us to learn more, read the report, and read more about the, the action items and policy recommendations in there. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 